Hello and welcome to another episode of The Europeans. I'm Dominic and I'm in Berlin and I'm speaking to Katie who's in a different city again. Oh, she's such a bloody traveller. Oh, my phone's ringing. Stop that phone. Turn it off. That's very unprofessional, Dominic. It's the first time that's ever happened. Um, Is it done? Can I talk now? Yeah, you can talk. Yeah, I'm in London, everyone. I'm supposed to be helping my boyfriend move house, but that's all in theory because we still don't have the keys yet, even though the removals van is there. Um, so yeah, it's all fun and games. I'm just podcasting while I'm waiting, really, to find out what's happening with this flat. Just killing the time, you know? Well, I'm sure your boyfriend is very happy that you have disappeared off to record a <laughs> podcast in the middle of this drama. You might be dismantling all our furniture, but I am busy podcasting. It's all about priorities. Absolutely. What's going on in Berlin? Well, um, there were a few thousand Nazis on my doorstep a few days ago. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, it was uh, Germany Day on Wednesday, the day of reunification. And my road, my little road in Mitte of Berlin happened to be on the, the official route for the Nazis to march during the day. So that was fun. Mainly, I just saw riot police. Okay. Because I was going to say, like, that must have felt quite scary. I actually didn't notice it happening. I was just sitting at home. <laughs> just watching Netflix. Yeah, literally just... I had a day off work, so I was just staying at home. And then I tried to leave the house around four o'clock. And it was weirdly difficult to leave the house because of the amount of riot police. And I was like, what's going on? You're like, what is all that Nazi chanting interrupting my Netflix? Yeah, exactly. But um, I heard there was quite big counter protests as well, though. Yeah, which was also on my road. Cool. I live opposite one of the biggest squats in Berlin, a really famous one, apparently. I should go and have a look inside it because apparently they do events but I don't think I'm cool enough to go in well listen I'm coming next week and I am extremely cool so we can go together I'll be like your escort and actually I can just pretend to be a journalist when you're here and then we can just be like the journalists who are going to check out a squat and therefore we don't have to be cool Dominic <laughs> being a journalist is not it's not like a free pass to getting into stuff that you would otherwise need to be cool for no I, th- I think any of us would be allowed to get in I think it would just be a way of justifying it to myself you know Oh, I see. You're here for journalism. Yeah, exactly. So I don't have to compete with them. And then they'll think I'm cool because I won't be trying to be cool. You are cool anyway. Thanks. I felt obliged to say that. Um, are you excited about me coming to visit or are you more annoyed that I'm coming specifically when you told me not to come? Uh, no, I am still excited because I want to see your pretty face. It's covered in cake. Jealous. But um, it's also going to be the first time that we've podcasted together in one place since the first time ever very exciting so that's to look forward to next week there's also plenty to look forward to in this very half hour i mean why not live in the present you know we've got our first ever macedonian on the show emila tanasovsky to explain what the hell is going on with this whole row over what his country is called we will also be speaking to kevin Sachs, a swiss canadian film buyer who wrote a very interesting article about how a little known eu directive is changing the face of netflix but first who's had a good week dominic it's been a good week for trains after it was announced that the four visegrad countries what are they katie um poland yeah hungary yeah czech republic yeah uh, uh, mind blank don't know slovakia Shit. Oh, not again. I did know that. I After did know you that. messed up with Slovakia, Slovenia that one time, remember? I also messed up with um, Vilnius last week as well. 
My brain's melting. You did. But actually, I'm quite impressed that you got three of the four. Well done. Thank you. Um, so the four Visegrad countries announced this week a plan to build a high-speed rail line between Budapest and Warsaw that would cross all four countries and stop in one city in each of them. Funding has yet to be confirmed for this 800-kilometre-long project, but they have launched a feasibility study and they will have a strong case asking for funding from the European Investment Bank, seeing as only 14% of previously funded train projects have been in Central Europe. So it'd only be fair. It would. And there was also good train news in Wales, where they got £119 from the EU to help progress the second phase of South Wales Metro. And there's been pressure mounting for European leaders to think more about a pan-European high-speed rail network. So trains are doing really well. There was a great article about exactly this pressure and the options in the Dutch public news service NOS a week or so ago. And they quoted the Royal Huskoning consultants as saying it would cost only 78 billion euros to create a high-speed rail system that could connect 31 European cities in a radius of around 750 kilometers around Amsterdam. Obviously, when I hear news about like train investment, I think, yay, that's great. And it might mean people use cars less, use planes less, and it's a better environmental option. Mm -hmm. But you have to judge these projects really individually, because as the Brits will know, who followed like the developments in High Speed Rail 2, which has been in the pipeline for ages now, it isn't always the best way of investing the money. And sometimes people would argue that it should be better spent improving the current inefficient rail services or improving local transport more generally and it can lead to greater inequality because the people that end up using the high-speed rail are only like the high-end business users because they can be quite expensive but it's so complicated and i still think trains are allowed to get good week despite all of that and i should stop talking about this before i go off the rails (laughs) oh that's a clever joke you've been lining that one up haven't you thank you yeah i wrote that one down delivery was very good um it's funny that you think that it might just be like fancy people that end up using the train because as soon as I heard about the Visegrad one that's going to connect these four cities in Central Europe I just thought this is going to be full of British people on like drinking tours of Budapest and Bratislava and I got really like prematurely anxious that this train was going to be full of Brits just throwing up everywhere and like spreading our bad reputation. I hope not though. That is maybe a fair anxiety and also I do I do think it means that the cities that are on these lines end up getting an economic boost but they're often the parts of the country that already are doing economically quite well mm. and it can leave these other neglected towns and cities even further behind. Yeah. It's interesting to hear some of the money might come from the European Investment Bank, our new sponsors, more on which later. But um, I've also read that there's quite a lot of Chinese money going into Eastern Europe at the moment, which is an interesting trend that I think we should talk about more at some point. But it'll be interesting to see if that like becomes a factor in it. Yeah, I uh, decided not to talk about that. Oh, okay. Because I thought it was like another can of worms, but we should talk about it at some point. You're absolutely right. We should. Who's had bad week, Katie? It has been a bad week for French farmers in the Pyrenees Mountains along the border with Spain. They've been engaged for several years now in something called the Bear Wars with the government. And this week, the farmers suffered quite a big defeat when the French government dropped a bear, a Slovenian bear, by helicopter into the mountains. Why would they do this, I hear you ask? 
Well, for quite a few years now, since the 90s, the French government has had an active policy of trying to reintroduce brown bears to these mountains, uh, mostly because we hunted them nearly to extinction, which is morally bad and wrong, but also because the bears are really good for the ecosystem. Among other things, they carry seeds around on those furry old backs of theirs, which helps those plants to spread out and flourish. Um, and it really reminded me of this discussion that we had with Max Rosberg in a previous episode back in, ooh, I think February. It's called Making Peace with the Wolves. Check it out. It was a good one. And um, that whole discussion was about the idea of reintroducing wolves to Europe. Your first thought is that they're these scary predators that are just going to eat people and sheep. But actually, they have a really important role in keeping these fragile ecosystems in balance. But farmers are really not happy about it, uh, mostly because their sheep get eaten. In one stretch of the Pyrenees called the Ariège, farmers say they've lost 372 sheep already this year. They do get compensated by the government. But like they'd rather it didn't happen in the first place, which is why when they got wind of the fact this week that this Slovenian mama bear was being brought in, they set up roadblocks in the Pyrenees all night to stop her getting delivered. Hence her being dropped down by helicopter. It was all very dramatic. When you say dropped, I hope they weren't <laughs> dropped from too high a height. Sorry, I should clarify. She was in a cage. The cage got like lowered down and then I guess opened somehow. I like fairy bears. <laughs> Me too. It's quite hard not to side with the government on this one. Because, like, apart from being good for biodiversity, wouldn't it be adorable if they made lots of tiny little cuddly cubs? Can we end this segment with, like, a bear noise? Yes, we can. This podcast is supported by Future Europe, a new podcast from the European Investment Bank. Now, we've already talked about the European Investment Bank once this week, and that wasn't because of sponsorship. That was just a coincidence. Katie wants me to clarify that the European Investment Bank is nothing like Goldman Sachs. <laughs> they fund nice projects like... Trains. Train projects. And infrastructure. Lots of different types of infrastructure, which is funnily enough what this podcast is all about. Since they're into uh, futuristic stuff and development projects, they've put together a little podcasting series about projects they've invested in. One for every EU country, celebrating all kinds of technical innovation around Europe. So there's one about Sweden going cashless. There is one about lasers in Hungary. There's one about designing smart cities in Belgium. And one thing that's really nice about them is that they're really short, only about seven minutes each. Nothing like the half hour you have to invest by listening to us rabbit on. It's the perfect amount of time for, I don't know, what do you get done in seven minutes? A bit of washing up? Oh, or to do one of these like uh, high intensity workouts. <laughs> oh my God, yes. What better way to accompany your jumping jacks than a short podcast from the European Investment Bank. They're about all kinds of weird and wonderful things. Here's a little clip from the episode about super high-tech lasers in Hungary. It's for the benefit of scientists from all around Europe and, by the way, from other parts of the world as well. So it's, it's a very good example of how scientists can come together as Europeans to construct something for the benefit of the scientific community in Europe and, of course, us all Europeans. We will be able to benefit from the science that uh, comes out of this in the long term. So the series is called Future Europe. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts and we'll post the link in our show notes. I'm sorry, Katie, I left you again to do an interview without me. Just, where is your commitment to this podcast, Dominic? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm contractually committed to an opera house at the moment, which takes slight precedence, but that's not an emotional commitment. I know that your heart was, was here during this conversation about Macedonia, yeah. which actually I'm sad that you missed because I felt like the whole Macedonia thing was super confusing. 
And uh, I just thought it was this big and penetrable, scary topic. So I'm really glad that we had Emil here this week to talk about it. Uh, I just want to say before this interview, a massive thank you to Andrew McDowell, friend of the show and former guest. You might have heard him talking about Kosovo back in February. Andy spent what felt like most of this week putting his touch with basically the entire population of Macedonia, trying to convince someone to come on the podcast. And it's a really delicate subject, this referendum. So we were delighted that he was able to hook us up with someone. So thank you, Andy, or as they say in Macedonian. Oh. Yeah, been practicing. Smug. I only know that because I tried to say thank you to him before in Macedonian, but ended up just saying you, and it sounded really stupid, apparently. <laughs> you. <laughs> you. <laughs> you. So anyway, just to fill you in before we talk to Emil, Macedonia had a referendum on September 30th on whether to change the country's name to the Republic of North Macedonia. Very catchy. Basically, Macedonia's name has always been controversial. You might have seen during parades at like the Olympics that right now it's still sometimes called, in official contexts, the former Yugoslavian Republic of Macedonia, which is quite a mouthful. Basically, the country equivalent of like the artist formerly known as Prince. That's what I always think of. But less cool. But less cool. Sorry. The Republic of North Macedonia was going to be the new name, mostly because of this very long and bitter argument that the country has been having with Greece about this for decades. Greece really does not like Macedonia calling itself Macedonia. So they had this referendum. The vote came back with a resounding 91% of people voting yes to changing the name. But very controversially, loads of people boycotted the vote and only 37% of the country actually voted. So it's pretty questionable whether it can be seen as legitimate or not. And let me guess, was there some Russian interference? There might be. You just wait. Do you think like Putin has a calendar in his office with a list of all the referendums and elections <laughs> that he should interfere in? It just says like stuff to interfere in at the top of it, underlined. Yeah, because actually it must be quite hard work. No one talks about that side of this story. The fact that... I don't think he does it personally, Dominic. Oh. I feel like he's got other stuff to do now, like wrestling bears and playing judo. Oh, yeah. Anyway, back to more important matters. Why is Macedonia's name so controversial? And why has this referendum turned into such a big international hoo-ha? We have the perfect person to explain all of this on the line. Emina Tanasovsky works for the Westminster Foundation for Democracy throughout the Balkans. And basically, his job is to work on projects that strengthen parliaments. So he's super well connected to politicians all over the region. And he is, in fact, a Macedonian. And I started by asking him, why is Macedonia's name such a massive problem? You're asking the million dollar question. It's a very interesting problem, I would say. It's a, it's a one which is rooted in um, Balkan culture. It's a problem which was not a problem until Macedonia was part of um, Yugoslavia. But once uh, it has declared its independence, it became a major problem primarily for Greece because Greece felt that uh, Macedonia, by using the name Macedonia as part of its name, is actually stealing part of Greek culture. Basically, they're claiming there's only one Macedonia, uh, that Macedonia is Greek. There's a region in Greece which is called Macedonia, and they felt it's, a, it's an attack on their identity. Historically, the region of Macedonia is a much broader region. And what used to be Macedonia in historical terms 
is now an area which is shared between several countries, actually. Greece, for the most part, Bulgaria, for a smaller part, uh, Macedonia, and there's a very small part which is now part of Albania as well. It's one of those interesting, controversial, I would say, disputes which don't make a lot of sense, but it's very, very um, normal, I would say, in Balkan culture, because if you go all over the Balkans, everybody's claiming that at one point of time they ruled a certain territory and this was part of theirs. So it, it has touched upon many issues which are connected to identity uh, and these are very emotional issues so there have been a lot of people who have been upset in Macedonia about how uh, the agreement might actually uh, have influence on their identity but uh, to be very fair this is not the first time we have changed the, the name in the last century. Uh, we were called uh, the Socialist Republic of Macedonia. We are currently in international use called the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. So Northern Macedonia in one way recognizes that territorially we are in the northern part of what used to be Macedonian historical terms. The sort of Alexander the Great Macedonia. Yes, the place of his birth is actually in today's Greece. Oh, is it? Yes, it is. Pella is geographically in today's Greece. But am I right in thinking that Alexander the Great has been used as a sort of nationalist, um, I don't know, like held up as a hero for Macedonian nationalists? Of course, uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the one thing which is very potent in the Balkans is nationalism. And yeah, uh, if you look at all of the Balkan states, and Macedonia is no exception, we like to often call upon uh, greatness from our history. And it's a very potent tool for nationalists, you know, because they can claim this was once a very great empire which was led by us. It appeals uh, to many people to use that uh, type of language. So going back to the referendum, here in sort of Western Europe, there were quite a lot of people characterizing the referendum as a battle for influence between Russia and the West on the edge of Europe. Mm -hmm. Can you talk us through why it's been seen that way? The NATO and EU aspirations of Macedonia are, are nothing new. If you look at all the polling in the last 20 years, NATO and EU accession have been receiving 70, 80, even at one point of time, close to 90% of public approval rating. But on the other side, I think there is quite a lot of credibility in those statements that the Western Balkans region is susceptible to this special type of, uh, let's say, uh, propaganda war. Russia does not have meaningful influence in the major political parties, but there are a number of politicians, including the president of the country and some of the current opposition, who have aligned more closely with some of the views of uh, Russian politics on the Balkans. The leaders of the boycott movement were very closely aligned with official Russia. They made no attempt to hide their association with Russia, you know, waving Russian flags at protests, uh, calling upon Russia's support. These smaller Balkan countries are very good for misinformation campaigns, because if you look at media literacy indexes, the countries are at the lowest scale in Europe. Can you give me an example, maybe, of the kind of propaganda that was floating around the Macedonian internet over the last couple of weeks? There was misinformation being spread that the country will become uh, a test ground for testing depleted Ukrainian, people will get cancer. So there was misinformation on various levels. 
the strongest ones were the ones which were emotional. Ones were that Macedonians will lose their identity, there'll be no Macedonians anymore because it will change the name, which I have to say it's a very ridiculous comment because Macedonia existed for years and years without actually having the name Macedonia. Uh, we were part of Yugoslavia, so we didn't become less Macedonian then. For a lot of people, there are a number of reasons why they didn't come out. Uh, on one level, it was protest vote. On another level, it was a very emotional issue. But there's, there was quite a lot of disinformation floating around, and that contributed to the fact that people should stay at home. So it was a funny referendum because only 37% of people voted. Of those people who did vote, 91% voted yes to the name change. The government has certainly argued that it is legitimate, you know, despite all the problems with the turnout. So they want to forge ahead. If I give you a call in a year's time, do you think I'm going to be calling you to talk about Macedonia or about North Macedonia? I think you will be calling to talk about, for all formal purposes, Northern Macedonia. In order for the constitution to be changed, uh, the government needs to have support of 80 members of parliament. The government currently has 71 MPs, so they don't have the actual numbers. I think that the government will forge ahead. There are no other options for the government because NATO accession will not happen. It is very clear that without the name change and agreement, Greece will not lift veto. And without the name change, the accession talks with the European Union will not start. There are a couple options right now. One is for the Prime Minister to try and persuade close to nine or 10 MPs in the parliament to support the idea of changing uh, the constitution. The second option is to call for early elections and the government to run either on one list or one coalition or with separate parties who will basically look to get two thirds of MPs so they can be able to change the constitution through a parliamentary process. All this chat about identity brings us very neatly onto the latest instalment of our partnership with Are We Europe a magazine, a beautiful magazine, in fact, which is all about identity. We are going to be speaking to Kevin Sachs all the way from Canada, although he is Swiss. So he has a very interesting perspective on European influence on Netflix. It was mentioned briefly by Kirill Hartog, one of the editors, two weeks ago, and I was personally so fascinated by the little tidbit that Kirill gave us that um, we had to get Kevin on the phone to explain a bit more about it. My name is uh, Kevin, Kevin Sachs, and uh, I was born and raised in Zurich, Switzerland. But for the past two years, I've been living in Toronto in Canada, and I've been working in the film industry, in distribution and acquisitions mainly. And now that explains why you wrote an article that was about that very thing, Netflix specifically, and how it's having to change due to a very little known EU directive. What is the audiovisual media services directive? This is uh, the early 1980s. The European Union wanted to protect local television and said we are going to set an EU-wide quota in cinemas, on the radio and on television to have a certain portion of the day go to local programming. But not only local programming, it's European programming. So French television can show a UK TV show that counts towards the quota. 
kind of limiting the influence of solely US or North American made content. Aha, uh-huh. because I had zero knowledge previously that like this was a fact of life for our TV. I was also as a teenager confused going to some of the biggest cineplexes in Switzerland and seeing these blockbuster movies and then these two very art housey European productions that kind of don't fit into the other lineup but were there to kind of balance out the stuff coming from North America. So until pretty recently, this wasn't applying to streaming services because the law hadn't quite caught up with the dominance of services like Netflix and Amazon Prime. But it now does apply to Netflix as well. And you were looking into how that is going to affect their output. What do you think this means? Now, where they have to meet a quota in Europe, that means they will have to invest into more original productions in Europe if they want to ramp it up to 30%, which is what they have to meet. So it's really good news for uh, European makers of TV and film, potentially. And actually, I think it's probably really good news for Netflix as well, because they will get more artistic diversity and perhaps they'll even get more viewers because it seems like locally produced content does well in local regions. So Not always, though. They made a French series called Marseille with uh, Gérard Depardieu in it, and it has bombed in France. It's terrible. It's so bad. I kind of agree with Katie here. I don't think they will go into Germany trying to get 60 million Germans to sign up. That's a nice side effect. They, I think they want European productions that transcend. For example, I know that Babylon Berlin, which is not technically a Netflix original production. It was made for a German broadcaster. It kind of didn't go as they planned in Germany. And Netflix swooped in and got worldwide rights except Germany. And it's kind of a transcending phenomenon. I've been really wanting to watch Babylon Berlin. Wait, can someone explain this one to me as well quickly? I think it's kind of the the roaring 20s where Berlin is the world's capital for art and culture. Like during that cabaret time where it's on the precipice of getting darker, but it's still in full swing and everything is lavish and everything is sexual freedom and freedom in, in art and music and everybody who wants to be anything in culture is is in Berlin. It's Germany's most expensive ever television series. It's golden and, it, and it's big and it's grand and it's kind of Baz Luhrmann style. It's really good. It's not my cup of tea, but it's it's very, very good. The thing Kevin was talking about, this Netflix effect, Kevin actually wrote a complete article about it for the latest issue of Are We Europe? From this week on, we now have a discount code so you can buy one of their beautifully designed magazines with 15% off if you use the code EuropeansPod. Please do this because it will be nice for you, but also because it will be nice for us if they see that we've sold loads of magazines. It'll make us look very powerful and influential. Which we are. And also you'll get a lovely magazine to read that's full of beautiful stories and pictures and it's just a lovely thing to have and to hold. So do it! Now, I realise that stories about children stumbling across lethal weapons when they are playing in nature aren't normally considered good news. Where are you going with this? Yet again, another questionable happy ending. Sorry, but this one is different, okay? Okay. 
An eight-year-old Swedish girl named Saga Vanacek was on holiday with her family in Vlodustin Lake. I shouldn't have even tried. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Anyway, she was near a lake in Sweden when she felt something unusual with her hand and pulled out a 1,500-year-old pre-Viking era sword complete with scabbard. She lifted it up and said, Daddy, I found a sword. (laughs) He just thought it was a weird-ass stick or something, but he showed it to a friend who thought it might be indeed an ancient relic. And it was. A local museum is now looking after the sword and doing a search of the rest of the lake, which has been suffering from drought. Sorry, bummer. I know. Um, But it's because of the drought, probably, that the sword was found after all this time. The museum have now also found a brooch from the third century and have yet to complete their search. So there may be more to come. This actually happened in July, but they decided not to announce it to the public until this week for fear of a summer rush to the lake that would have presumably ruined the museum's search for other old goodies. There has been some pressure on Twitter to crown Saga the true queen of Sweden due to the mythological significance of pulling a sword out of a lake. And the Europeans podcast would officially like to approve of this development. Hail Queen Saga! Hail Queen Saga! Katie, I was just wondering, we've got to this point in the podcast and we still haven't talked about Theresa May's dancing. And I feel like we should before the episode ends because it's important reporting. How did you feel about it? Because I was kind of behind her. I I like that she is leaning into our national brand of awkwardness. On the other hand, especially French friends and colleagues tell me, you do know your prime minister is an international laughingstock, don't you? And this really isn't helping. I come from it from a completely different angle. I think it was a really cynical political ploy. And I don't like her for it, actually, because I think she will have been told by her advisors that those two dances she did in Africa went down really well and that people it kind of humanized her and made her come across as a normal human being who is awkward and weird yeah and there's absolutely no way it was spontaneous she will have been told to come on stage dancing to dancing queen yeah because they wouldn't have played it otherwise yeah they wouldn't have played it otherwise if you haven't watched the video please do immediately but I wonder whether people will agree with me that it's just a political ploy and I think it's kind of a tasteless one at that because it's pretending that you are Human. This human <laughs> does not make a human. Oh, man. I've clearly fallen for it, hook, line and sinker, because I was like, you know what? I've come out of this not disliking her anymore. The thing I really liked about this whole interlude is that Dancing Queen is, of course, Swedish music. And if the whole point was to like improve brand Britain and be like, Brexit is going to be a success, then the best way possible was to do it with imported Swedish pop music. I love that. Maybe you'll treat us to a bit of Dancing Queen while we play out the episode, Katie. I think I will. Some people have said that this song has been ruined forever by Theresa May's dancing. We do not think so. We're going to play you out with it. Next week, we're going to be coming to you from Berlin. Very excitingly, both of us in the same place for the first time in ages. Uh, Until then, if you'd like to find us on the internet, we're all over the place. At Europeans Pod on Twitter at Europeans Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. Just type in Europeans Podcast. And don't forget that Dancing Queen is the correct beats per minute to save someone's life if you're giving them, uh, what's it called? CPR. CPR. Good to know. Till next week, everyone. Adios. Cheers. You are-